Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And once again, our regular host, Matthew Sanderson, is unable to join us. He's been in hospital for a whole month, but we're very pleased to say that he is now home and on the road to recovery. And taking his seat, we have a very special guest, author, podcaster, and YouTuber, Seth Skorkowski. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's delightful to have you back on the show, Seth. I, you might remember that Seth and his co-host John Hook from the Modern Mythos podcast did do an interview with us late last year, wasn't it? Yeah. And so, yes, I shall link to all that good stuff. And this episode, we're looking at peril in Call of Cthulhu. But before we get into all that dangerous stuff, what is going on? Well, in the summer, in June, we'll be releasing our next Blasphemous Tome. That'll be issue nine. And we would welcome submissions from any of you dear listeners. The deadline is April the 6th, 2022, for submissions of either artwork, mostly black and white, or writing and that could be articles of whatever you want really you, you feel is appropriate to a call of cthulhu themed zine up to around 500 words in length but if you contact us via submissions at blasphemoustomes.com then we're happy to talk to you yes and because we are licensed by chaosium if that article is say a stat block for a monster or something like that then we can put in call of cthulhu stats and the like and also coming up a few days after this show releases on the 19th of March, 2022, the Concrete Cow Convention in Milton Keynes will be taking place. If you want to check that out, you can go to mk-rpg.org.uk slash concrete underscore cow. And there'll be links in the show notes. And a quick last minute addition. I recently recorded with pretending to be people again. You might remember that I ran Bleak Prospect for them last year, and yet somehow they still invited me back on. And this time, I've run the scenario that I wrote for issue three of the Blasphemous Tome, a pulp Cthulhu adventure called A New Age of Wonders, set at a New Year's Eve party in rural Vermont. It all went pretty spectacularly, and there should be plenty of thrills, chills, and spills, and, oh, actually, quite a lot of blood. And that, I believe, will be going out starting on the 18th of March, so a few days after this episode goes out. And I believe it's going to be split over five episodes. So do give that a listen, if it appeals. And now, on to our main topic, Peril in Call of Cthulhu. In a game like Call of Cthulhu, with no challenge ratings and no expectations of playing fair, 
How does a keeper know how dangerous to make things? How do you keep your games feeling dangerous without paralyzing the players? And what kinds of peril are interesting in the, well, either darker horror approach of classic Call of Cthulhu or the more two-fisted approach of Pulp Cthulhu? <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, when we're talking about a game feeling perilous or being perilous, what are we talking about here? Well, I would say it's a, a, a sense of, of danger or risk or the stakes where the important part for storytelling is, is we have some sort of conflict and the conflict can't exist if we don't have stakes. So with Call of Cthulhu and horror, we're usually leaning on, on the darker side, but in usually adventure, we're usually looking at, uh, let's say, the end of the world or the, the characters themselves and, and horror we usually go for the throat with uh, a lot more personal stakes. So that's where we can pull in uh, loved ones a lot. You know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. great horror stories that is really just centered around, you know, the, the hero trying to get a child or a loved one from the clutches of, of something evil. So we can have that peril not be about themselves. And I think a lot more effectively than we can in kind of an adventure game. Because an adventure game, it really is about whether you survive. And we can lean more on the roleplay aspects of other characters. And then, of course, we also have uh, sanity as the other thing mm. that we, we could risk losing. So you could have an adventure where physically it's actually not much of a risk to them. Uh, it's very low risk. But sanity-wise, that is actually the, the type of hit points that we're going to be charging toward as far as what they could suffer risking. And that's a different type of damage that they're susceptible to. One of the big things with horror is a lot of the role play. So it's the other characters around the player characters can be the source of the, the peril or what's in peril. A lot of it as well boils down to what the players are willing to buy into as being important to their characters. Because you talk about threats to loved ones, for example, and I think that's a classic one, both in horror and, I mean, just in thrillers and genre fiction in general. But you obviously do fairly often get players who create characters who exist in in an absolute vacuum so that these things can't be used against them. And I think it's absolutely pointless if you have a player like that to think, okay, well, I'll create a sense of peril by targeting their loved ones or putting the things they care about at risk because if they don't care about anything, there's no sense of risk. I remember, for example, running a game of Monster Hearts years back where one of the players had decided to play the Infernal skin. And the Infernal is basically a character who has made a deal with the Dark Power to get all the things in life they want. And so I had the Dark Power basically start making things complicated with their family and friends and asking the play a character to do things that would harm or at least put them at odds with the people that they'd said ahead of time they cared about. And every time that happened, the player would just shrug and say, yeah, okay. And there was absolutely no drama that came out of that. And I think, again, you know, if you've got someone like that in the Call of Cthulhu game, they've put down that their backstory connection is they look after their beloved old mother who is infirm and needs constant help. If you have a situation where 
that relationship is threatened in some way, some players just won't care. Well, that almost seems to come out of an insecurity of not wanting to allow yourself as a player to take on any risk, not letting mm. somebody else have power over you in that way as, as GM. It seems like as a player, you've got to kind of buy into the danger because there is no danger. You're sat in a chair with some snacks mm -hmm. and a drink in your living room. There's no actual danger. So you've got to allow yourself to buy into this sense of peril, I think. So I welcome the fact that as a player character, you know, um, I've got, you know, a wife and children or something like that, that mm. in the fiction could be put in, in danger because that's only through that, I think, can I as a, an investigator, as a player, strive to do something heroic, you know, through that kind of um, either self-sacrifice or, um, yeah, perhaps by putting myself at risk in the game. And I think with players who don't, you know, I don't want any relationships because either I don't, I don't care personally or I don't want them to be used against me or anything like that. A lot of times there is the, their stuff is one of the big things you can put at risk. With a lot of games, it is about getting more treasure or more items and whatnot. So if that's what the, the player cares about, then you put those at risk. So the peril becomes the stuff that they value. And that's really all it comes down to is whatever it is they value needs to be at risk. And that's where the peril comes from. So if, mm. if they're not the type of role player that would actually feel much motivation if you threatened the friends and family of their imaginary friend, okay, then we'll find what it is that gets the player concerned. Because really, that's actually all that matters. The character doesn't exist. I want the player concerned. So if they're just going through the motions of like, okay, I got I to gotta save my Aunt Linda, and they really don't care about their Aunt Linda, then we need to find something that the player cares about. Because... But that's the person we're trying to entertain. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to a player character as an imaginary friend before, and I absolutely love <laughs> it. <laughs> and I guess also that's why it's such a, an easy sell to put mortal danger in there as a peril, because the one thing that most players, in fact, particularly the kind of player who will create that social armor or that social vacuum around their character, the one thing they will really care about is their character's ongoing viability, their well-being. And so if there are threats to their character's viability, I mean, not even just death, but losing levels or in Call of Cthulhu terms, perhaps taking on new phobias or really serious injuries and stuff like that, then the aversion to that risk might create a sense of peril where nothing else will. Yeah, like, I think it's the the, uh, the dark young. It sucks out points of your strength mm. permanently, I believe. Yeah. Holy crap. That's a little different than normal physical damage. That's one of those, like, even if you make this, you make it through, a lot of players might not want to play their character if they're suddenly walking around with a, you know, a strength of, you know, 17. There's like, well, I can't, we can't even play this person anymore. They're going to be just an invalid. So there are things that we can do to throw them in peril. That doesn't always necessarily mean, you know, you hit zero hit points, your dad roll up a new character. We can get something that puts them at risk. If the player can be afraid, 
either because they're really good role players and they get the character, or they're just afraid for their, their character, that's the risk. And the reward is you know, the fun that we have trying to get them through it. I would say I feel a sense of peril in Call of Cthulhu much more so than I do in a game of Dungeons & Dragons. Even when I feel like I'm going into a situation which is relatively balanced in Call of Cthulhu, I feel there's a, a greater sense of peril. I don't know if you would agree. Absolutely. I don't know about peril, but vulnerability, and certainly. I guess death and debilitating injuries and those huge kinds of losses are less common in D&D. So there may be the feeling that no matter how dire things get, your character will get through that in a way that they might not in Call of Cthulhu. But at the same time, I'd, I'd argue that, at least for some players, that can perhaps perversely make Call of Cthulhu feel less perilous because they see their characters as being more disposable. I think this is less the case these days, but when I think back to my experiences back in the 80s, character death was just such a common thing in Call of Cthulhu that it was, I mean, it was almost a joke. It was, okay, right, I'll get the next character out, bang, you know, it's the, the same as the previous one, I'll just change the name, or, you know, it's his brother who just steps mm. in from the shadows to take over. There's no sense of peril there because it's not affecting the player's ability to engage with the game at all. But if you've got a high-level D&D character and they encounter something that drains levels or something like that, and this is a character you've been playing for three years and really been building up, then perversely that might feel like more of a threat. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, once again, it comes out to how invested the player is in the character. So if mm -hmm. it is, I've played this character for the past two years, I've, I've gotten myself up to 16th level, and uh, yeah, at this point the XP requirements are so high that it's just, it takes forever to get any, and all of a sudden I just got level drained. Oh God, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. you feel absolute peril. And yeah, if, if the characters feel disposable because we're, we're doing games where it, it pretty much is hopeless, then it's difficult for most people to feel vested in those characters because you do kind of have that that thought in the back of your head of like, it doesn't matter. Whether it's a one-shot or not, you still have this disposability feeling for them. And that that really does actually take away from it because the player doesn't care. So you need to get them you know, invested in that character. That way it is more concerning. Kind of like we have to get them invested in their NPCs if we want to threaten them to make them concerned about it. I guess when you say the player doesn't care, the player can still be having fun. You know, when you think of like Dungeon Crawl mm. Classics, where you're starting off with maybe four characters and the funnel idea. As, so you start off with several characters and the idea is that you're going to die off and you'll have one left and that will become your character. That's, that's an approach that Dungeon Crawl Classics takes. But I'm having fun playing those, but I don't feel the mm. sense of danger, perhaps. I mean, perhaps in instances yeah. I do, but it's more about adventure and fun than danger and horror, perhaps. Yeah, I don't think you're ever going to get that sense of horror from disposable characters, something like a DCC funnel, because it is that relish that you take in their gruesome and sometimes ridiculous demises. That is good Grand Gwynil fun. It might share some aesthetics with horror, but I don't think there's a real sense of horror in that. So we've made that differentiation between 
kind of fun action and threatening danger. So is this about the tone of the game that we have to all work together to create if we want to really get that feeling that we're going into danger? We're not going to get that maybe if we just, you know, or do we get that if we're just having a what might one might call a a lighter kind of fun game? You don't really get that experience. I think you can, but it's a lot harder to guarantee it. It's the lightning in the bottle. If you can take a very lighthearted game and still pull off the horror. Uh, but I see that as kind of an against the odds sort of accomplishment. If you, if you sit down, you're going to play a call through the rear or any game. And you just basically have that announcement. We're going to play horror. Everybody goes in with the anticipation of we're going to play horror and they're going to try to achieve that goal versus if it's a lighthearted game and the, and the GM just suddenly manages to get it horror and all the players get into that mindset. That's beautiful, but that's so difficult to do. Uh, and there's too many factors that can throw it off that I don't care how good of a, of a GM you are, it's still against the odds. And I think it comes down as well an awful lot to player investment in that premise where the GM says, yeah, okay, we're going to play this as horror. You do need players who are going to buy into that. There's one person who I've played with loads of times, always had an absolute blast uh, playing with them. But on the other hand, I know if I ever run a horror game for them, it is not going to end up feeling horrific because they're just going to end up playing things for action, for laugh, trying to get as many jokes out of it as possible. And that's absolutely fine. That's a great way of playing a lot of times. But it does mean that when I've on the rare occasions I've tried to run a more serious horror game with them, I just know it's doomed to failure. And because they'll never buy into that sense of their character being in danger. Or it's not even that, I think. Sometimes I think players, and we've probably all done this at some stage, use humour as a defence in in those situations. If things are getting scary or serious or you're feeling like your character's in danger of losing something that's important to them, it's very easy just to try to laugh all that off, to break the tension that it's creating. And that's absolute human nature. But it's also why mm. you know, movies like The Thing, it has those moments of humor that are absolutely wonderful because they're they're usually bookended by wonderful horror. You know, that the spider head thing, legendarily creepy yes. monster, and then you've got the 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 response to it. <laughs> Everybody laughs. It's a beautiful moment for and it's an instantly followed by horror. But it is this kind of nice little valley where we we drop the tension for just a moment before we ramp it right back up again. And, 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 you know, gallows humor is a very much thing. If you ever sit around and talk with uh, people who have been you know, in the front line of combat, their sense of humor is just dark, but that's yeah. a, that's a human survival nature. Same thing with surgeons, a lot of stories of stuff surgeons say while they're holding someone's heart in their hand, that's how they're trying to cope with incredible stress. Oh, God, yeah. An old girlfriend of mine was a psychiatric nurse, and most of her friends were psychiatric nurses working in secure units and speaking to them socially. The kinds of things that they'd say to, to let off steam, it was the most, basically come up with the most horrific shit and find it funny just because that was the only way they had of coping with the things they saw on a daily basis. And I think with a game, we, we should allow the joke and the humor. The trick is getting that second ramp back up. Because if they if they do deflate it, and this is where the player has to be willing to help, 
okay, we had our, our momentary release. We all laughed probably too hard at that joke. That joke probably was not as funny as we reacted to it. But then we're all going to like, okay, yeah, let's get back in the zone. Let's let's pull back on the horror. That way, when the, when the keeper says, okay, now it does this, everybody's immediately back to that terror after the deflation moment. So the players have to be willing to do that. And that's usually the part I've had to like wrestle with when we started playing Call of Cthulhu and horror games is they like, hey, guys, I don't mind the jokes, but we are trying to get this mood. So, yeah, bring it back. And a good keeper can try to direct that, but it's up to the players of how they actually respond. So is there anything in the games that fights against this that, that makes it feel like too safe? In, in, in the conventional fantasy games, you know, D&D, which you mm. know, it, it's it's the biggest one in the room. Let's talk about it. I find with the newest edition D&D, it's kind of an accomplishment to die. Like <laughs> I'm kind of impressed uh, yeah. because you know when I came from early AD&D, where death was just right there around the corner, and then we started playing fifth edition. When I my players figured out, I figured it out first, but when they figured out that they really weren't at risk, their own enjoyment just ended because we have so many healing spells and there's so many contingencies to keep you from dying that their interest in it went to zero when they figured out that they were pretty invulnerable overall. And so if there isn't risk, the reward does lose all its substance. So I feel that they have mm-hmm. to know there's risk or at least believe it because with D&D, they loved fifth edition while they believed that risk was ever present and always there. And once they realized it wasn't, it just went away. Yeah. I got to say, that's very much my experience playing recently. My character was taken out with a backstab in the dark as a surprise in the encounter and down on the floor and everybody else charges in and like I'm dying on the floor. But, you know, one healing word, I'm back up again. I think maybe I got to make one death save, but you've got the death saves. And like you say, so many healing powers. We played a campaign. We lost one character because of a beholder using, is it disintegration ray? And like that couldn't be healed. Yeah. So we actually lost one. And to me, I mean, it wasn't my character, so I feel kind of bad saying this, but <laughs> that was kind of a good thing. And I'm quite happy to sort of throw my character in and put them at risk because I'm quite happy sort of, I mean, I don't want it to happen all the time, but I, I like that feeling of, of putting my character at risk. So I totally understand what you're saying, because if you don't have that sense of risk and I can just run into every encounter and just know that I'm going to win it, then... I don't know. Then I don't yeah. have the sense of risk. I don't have this sense of excitement. It's like yeah. playing mm. poker and knowing you're going to win every round. It's like, it gets a bit dull. Yeah, it's a different type of fun, but it's just not the type of fun that we enjoy because we, the higher the risk, the more we like it. Obviously, all three of us are fans of horror and you know, Call of Cthulhu and other horror games. So maybe our perception of that risk, that wanting to feel more vulnerable in a game like D&D isn't universal. Maybe that is a selling point for a lot of players who just don't want to feel like they could lose their character at any moment. Yeah, this is definitely true because there's somebody else at my table, another player. I'm a player. There's another player who feels it's too dangerous and we get taken down too quickly and the NPCs are doing too much damage. 
and they're very attached to their character and they don't want them to die. So yeah, I think it is a different mindset. Yeah, that attachment to the character, I think, as we said, I mean, that's an important part of creating that sense of peril in the game. But I mean, I've seen that also go too far in the other direction. There are a couple of people I played with fairly regularly, one who used to do this chronically and one who I've only seen it do once, who will pretty much disengage from the game if they feel like their character's in too much peril. I think with one of them, it was just not wanting to feel vulnerable themselves. But with another one, it was a very particular example where they created a character they really liked, but it was in quite a dangerous Call of Cthulhu game. And they became more and more convinced, quite rightly so, that their character was quite likely to die as things went on. Mm. And so it got to the climax of the game, and they basically just sat it out. The other characters went off to do something really dangerous together, and it made for a really great scene and so on. And his character basically just sat outside and, and waited for an hour. And I thought, I could every now and then perhaps cut back there and just describe twiddling his thumbs or there was the imp of the perverse in me that thought actually there's a really nasty encounter i could throw at him just while he's sitting outside but the fact that he was willing to to disengage from the game like that willing to uh, sort of hamstring his own fun as a player to protect this character i thought that would actually be a, a pretty unpleasant thing to do it would just be a gotcha moment. So I don't know what to do in situations like that as a GM where people do get too defensive and too overprotective. Well, there's there's a defensive and overprotective, and then there's also just, I guess, the, the hopeless despair. Mm. I have one player who can get into hopeless despair um, on a dime. It's, it's also, if, if he has a string of just ridiculously bad dice rolls, that all of a sudden he just, he hits you know, what's the point? Hopeless. And I think the most dramatic moment I had with that was we were playing a cult that uses the powered by the apocalypse system. And in that game, if you take a serious injury, you know, it's like, okay, you know, do you want to take like at this level or do you want to be knocked unconscious or just die? He was like, I just want to die. And it was like, oh, fuck. are you kidding me? <laughs> what are you doing? And he's like, yeah, mm. I'm just going to die. And, you know, it was like this, I couldn't I, I wrap my head around, because I've played with him for many years, with the best men at each other's weddings. So it's like, it's not like I don't know him well, but he'll mm-hmm. hit these weird states of just, oh, what's the point? And, you know, you almost have to like look at him and say, like, come on, man, you know me, trust me. And egg him through it. And with that one, I was like, I just actually went in the mood. So it's like, okay, you're dead. And, you know, afterwards it was like, what, you know, it was like, well, that wasn't much fun. Like, well, you did that because the players get the choice. Like, which, what do you want? Mm-hmm. He just chose, he chose death. So it doesn't have to be necessarily that I'm so protective of my character that I will disengage from the game. It's just much the, the hopelessness of, um, oh, I can't do it. I mean, do you think they, that in that instance, your friend just wasn't enjoying the game and that was the way out of it? He wasn't enjoying it, and it was actually strictly due to a just insanely bad string of dice rolls before right. that. It's kind of a feeling of like the universe is suddenly aligning mm. against me. Once upon a time, since we've known each other so long, we've we've witnessed each other's every bad gaming habit 
either of us have ever had. So he went through my phase of just being murder happy. And so he knows it's not that that was, that's, that was years ago, but he'll still have some despair of, Oh, what's the point? And it happens. But I think that with that one, it was a one shot. Now we're playing with a campaign. He's got a character he cares about. I'd be, I'd be shocked if he did it, but Mm. yeah, you never know. And there's a related thing I've seen a few times, particularly at conventions, where you have a player who generally is new to role-playing or quite young, but sometimes just someone who is playing an unfamiliar system or isn't used to playing horror games, who has no idea what the risk levels, what the peril that their character is in actually means. And so everything seems so absolutely deadly and dangerous. Every choice that they're faced with seems like it's perhaps just going to lead to disaster, that they become absolutely paralyzed by it. I've only seen it happen a few times, but it's really quite marked when it does. That I think it's related to that despair thing, that feeling of whatever I do here is going to go wrong, so why bother? Yeah, and well, one of the big lessons I end up having to learn the hard way as a GM, I think all my lessons I learn the hard way, is I, as the GM, am rooting for the, the characters. You know, I, mm. I want the characters to live, but I also have to be able to show my teeth that I'm willing to do it. And I think it's like watching somebody do a, a tightrope walk where they don't have a safety net. You know, we're, we're absolutely rooting for them, but we're also absolutely fascinated at the, at the risk that they're at. <laughs> but we don't want them to fall, but we want to watch them succeed despite the risk. And that's kind of yes. how I look at it now. And in our campaigns of Call of Cthulhu, we have a very probably well above average survival rate. But my players are well aware that I will back up the threat. But I'm also really rooting for them. And I think the horror can also be achieved with not just the player's concern for the character, but if the player can get the GM to fall in love with the character, it's also horrifying for the GM because they're now the one doing this to their favorite imaginary friend too. Because I've, mm. I've had many encounters where I'm like, oh God, I don't want to hurt the character. But. I'm attacking you anyway. Yeah. When they're rolling their dodge, I'm like riveted on it because it's like, oh, please, please, please don't fail this just because I don't want to lose that character. And that's, that's also part of the fun that I get of the horror. It's not me just making a horrifying experience for them. It's for me too, because you know, it's uh, the scene in a horror movie, the person's mind is controlled and they're now holding the knife saying, I don't want to do this as they're charging at their friend. That's kind of the horror that I feel as a game master of like, I don't want to kill you, but you know, roll initiative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think particularly once you get the dice involved, yeah, then a lot of it is out of your hands. And hearing you say that is straying a bit outside role-playing, but, but to fiction. I had this revelation many years back along those lines about how important it is to really fall in love with characters when they're going to be put through hell. I grew up reading horror. I'd read a lot of horror, and I, I, I absolutely love horror. But then in my, my mid to late 20s, I encountered Jonathan Carroll. He's something else. He's still my favorite contemporary writer. He His, his work is almost impossible to classify by genre. But 
he has this one particular thing, which is he writes the most amazing, not necessarily perfect, but he writes characters that you can fall in love with, characters where you genuinely care about them in a way that I've never really felt about any other writer. And then he puts them through absolute hell. He does the most terrible things to them through the rest of the book. And those books hurt. Those books hurt in a way that no other fiction that I've read has hurt. And yeah, I think if you can get that dynamic in a game, that's exactly what you want. Oh, yeah. It's because if your player is playing a great character and everyone around the table is rooting for them, that really does, does up it. Because it's not just concern for your character and your your stuff that your character has done but you know sometimes you can actually be way more concerned about the other character than your own i've had that where if i die you know, that's gonna that stink but god don't let them die <laughs> you're talking about freedom eh? freedom must you? be protected at all costs scott i will never <laughs> forgive you <laughs> i have sold that show to so many people's like it's the best player character i've ever seen she won me over like 20 seconds <laughs> Just to explain for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, Frida May is a character played by Veronica in the Flotsam and Jetsam campaign I'm running for How We Roll at the moment. And Seth is one of the players in it as well. And Frida May has not only become, I think, a fan favourite, but so beloved as the other players there that I am afraid to do anything nasty now just in case something bad happens to Frida May. She is that beloved. On the flip side to all that, one thing that I, I wonder about sometimes as a GM is... Yeah, all right, I do want to challenge the player characters. I want to make their their games horrific. I want to make them complicated. But I often wonder where to hit the balance there. I've been running this World War Cthulhu London game for Ain't Slade Nobody recently, the meat trade. I think it's become almost a joke that every time they hit upon a plan and try to execute it, it goes horribly wrong. Part of that is, yes, me throwing curveballs at them every now and then, because I, I always think it's really boring in a game to come up with a plan and then just flawlessly execute it. There have always got to be complications and unforeseen circumstances to make it interesting. But part of it is also that a lot of their plans are really bad and the dice just seem to hate them. And so as a result, it, it's just everything they touch turns into this cascading clusterfuck. It does make for very entertaining play. But at the same time, I do worry that they're going to hit the point eventually where they just become so frustrated, like your friend, it's sort of everything we touch just falls apart. I want to see them succeed sometimes. It's just, it's just difficult to resist the temptation to fuck with them. <laughs> I feel this on like several levels. So <laughs> I had recently gotten a comment on, on a video I had done uh, talking about the players don't actually want their plan to work flawlessly. They think they mm. do, but if it does and they, they manage to pull off the perfect heist or the perfect whatever, and it goes perfectly according to plan, there is that thrill of we pulled it off, but there's also kind of a disappointment if it just felt like it was too easy. And so I, I, I talked about in there, if, you know, throw a, a wrench in if we have to to throw that curveball at them 
And yeah, at some commenter talked about this. That really says a lot about you, how you're, you're really antagonistic. It's like, it's not about being antagonistic. It's about in every James Bond movie ever, he gets captured every hmm. single one. That's not, yeah, an antagonistic thing. That's just part of the like the thrill. Oh, he's captured. How is you know how is James going to get out of this one? And that's actually what it's about. And so if if they do pull off the perfect plan, they do get that rush of like, wow, that was great, and we ended way earlier than we thought. And um, <laughs> hmm, I guess that's it. So that curveball of like, okay, let's uh, let's throw something unforeseen in here. It does add to the thrill because. Even if they overcome the wrench and they pull off this perfect plan, despite the fact you threw a curveball at them, they're way prouder than that. Then we figured this out in two minutes. We made a few rolls. We're done. Like the thrill isn't there. It's not, it doesn't feel the same level of accomplishment. Well, I guess that takes us into how we set up situations for our players and how dangerous we make those situations. Because, Scott, in your introduction, you talked about challenge rating, which mm. I don't know if everybody listening would know, but that comes from, I think, from D&D, where you get a numerical guide as to the types of monsters and the values compared to the player characters, such that there can be a balance so that it can be a sense of an equal playing field to some degree. And then even in in the earlier versions of D&D, we didn't have the actual challenge rating, but you had the concept that as you went down the levels in the dungeon, you know, physical levels down the stairs, are we going to go from third down to the fourth level? Oh my God, it's going to be more dangerous down there. So the deeper you go, the more <laughs> dangerous it gets, which I think is brilliant. I, I love that. Mm. But in Call of Cthulhu, we don't have that concept. You could be going into a house and there's a Shoggoth in the basement. And we don't have that concept either of player characters climbing up levels in experience themselves. Yeah, they can improve their skills and their proficiency to some degree, but they're always just human beings. They're not 10th level fighters that you might see in D&D with armor and magic swords. So how do we go about presenting them with danger should it be balanced yeah you know, how do we deal with that so when when i finally broke away from dnd gaming where it was levels and hit points and power 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 to a more realistic style of combat system where we're fragile we're just little sacks of meat um I had my initial wrestle with it and the players had their own because they were used to characters that were nigh and vulnerable. And all of a sudden it was a random person with a switchblade could kill you at any time. And how do you handle that? Uh, so it, it can be very difficult to overshoot the difficulty on it, but I always feel that there should be. So a lot of times I'll do is the warning of this is about to be really bad. So there is the, Show what the monster or the bad guy can do before you unleash it on them. So a lot of times I will I will have an NPC die or they will stumble upon a thing. And that's my way of saying, guys, this is about to be hardcore. And then there is, they, they should have the, a reasonable chance to escape or overcome it. Because there, there are a lot of the monsters, like a Shoggoth, I mean, that to me is like the great red dragon from D&D. You do not fight that thing. It, 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 it's a god. It's so powerful. 
And I, I dislike uh, in a lot of the older scenarios back when Call of Cthulhu was a meat grinder. Sometimes they just throw a random Shoggoth into an adventure for like no reason and with no warning. Uh, and, and I always felt that that was extremely unfair. There was one in the Arkham book that has like a Shoggoth just in a tunnel. Don't know why. There's no way the players will know it's there before they come across it and they can't get away. They're also faster than everybody. So it's not like you can really run from a shagath. It's like, okay, well, it moves as fast as a car. Um, so I want them to at least know it's about to be bad before it's bad or give them a good chance to escape from it before it's too late. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my way of doing it. And if they do engage, I want it to at least last long enough to realize this is probably a really bad idea. <laughs> That way you get a sense of dread, don't you? Whereas oh, yeah. if I go into a room and there's a shot off there and it jumps on me and eats me, there was no sense of dread. In every horror film, you know, when they go down to the cellar, it's like we're all sat in our seats saying, why? Why are you going into the cellar? Why are you going down? Don't go down there. <laughs> yeah. And this is more like they just randomly go to the bathroom in a well-lit house, open it up, and then all of a sudden something jumps out and kills them. No warning. That in a horror film would be a terrible scene. Well, it'd be a... Um, Oh my god, uh, a jump scare, right? Yeah, which is fine in a film sometimes, but but it, ultimately it'd be pretty deflating. Yeah, if it's like a main character, if it's mm. that yeah, the establishing scene, there's a killer on the loose. You can have somebody open up the bathroom door and an axe hit him in the face, and then you know the you know, opening credits roll. But if it's the main character, just randomly halfway through a movie, opens the door and axe hits him in the face, and it's over. Everyone, everyone watching, it's gonna be like, well, that sucked and not pay attention to probably the rest of the movie. <laughs> but I think one thing that's going to help you a bit there in Call of Cthulhu compared to D&D is the fact that the players have ideally bought into the idea that this is the kind of game they're playing. So there is that feeling that if they see a monster for example, it's probably not a good idea to run up to it and punch it in the face. Uh, well, assuming it has a face. In a way that in D&D, you see a monster, you're generally fairly safe tackling it. In Call of Cthulhu, I think the default assumption from most players is, I see a monster, it's probably going to be a really bad idea to pick a fight with it. Except in Pulp Cthulhu. Hmm. Well, yeah, before this, I kind of jotted down like moments that my players absolutely had total terror was a pulp Cthulhu. It was actually the two-headed serpent. Oh, wow. It was the the formless spawn coming out of the well. And part of that was the way I, I described it going, but it went from, you know, zero to terrified as that thing, you know, was kind of rolling out this almost like ball of uh, tar the way it moved. My players had no idea what it was. And so it wasn't just the characters that annoyed it. My players were like, oh my God, what the hell is this thing? And it went to total terror because we went from humanoid monsters that bleed and have faces to a goo that's coming at them. And we have no idea what to do. Bullets aren't working, just run away. And I, I think that that escalation, and it, it's back to the old Lovecraft quote of fear of the unknown. Yeah. If it is alien and weird and we can't really put our finger on what it is, that does make it a lot scarier than, you know, it's like, oh, it looks like a human, but it's got, you know, a pig face. Okay, let's let's kill it. But if it's alien and the weirder it is, more insectile or, or more plant-based, it starts becoming harder for us to really wrap our heads around it. And that does create that discomfort. 
And I think as well, one useful tool in horror games in particular is making things feel more perilous than they actually are. If you can present the feeling of mortal threat in a situation where perhaps the characters aren't actually in danger of dying, but you know perhaps they've they've encountered uh, a group of really creepy villagers in in a village, and the player characters are outnumbered, and the villagers are just acting weirdly. They look odd. They've perhaps have some non-human characteristics. Those villagers don't need to be hostile. They don't need to be actually threatening the player characters' lives for there to be a feeling of threat. I think most people will just automatically feel that this is a dangerous situation and to play things carefully without you as the keeper having to say yeah okay well they they all pull out knives and announce they're going to sacrifice you to the goddess there's almost two things here isn't there there's there's the danger and there's the fear of the danger yeah the danger is often actual physical things that are going to rip you apart or drive you insane and often as a character I might not be very effective, but I can use my gun or my fists or whatever to try and, uh, or, or my feet to try and run away. There's there's something physical that I can do, and it becomes a sense of adventure mixed in with the the sort of panic of the situation. But on the build up yeah. to that danger, there's the fear, there's the the dread of something I I think is going to be there, but I'm not quite sure what it is. So often not quite knowing what it is. You know, I've read about it in a tome that I found, but I don't really know if that's right. I've, I've met some NPCs that have given me some information that seems to conflict. I've maybe seen a corpse that was killed by this thing and there's, you know, creepy mm. signs and so on. You know, like Seth said, it kind of gives clues and indications that there's something dreadful there. And it's this, I think the, core of Call of Cthulhu to me is that sense of the build-up of the dread of that that uh, that danger, that peril. There was a, a, a quote, and I wish I had thought about this. I would have made sure I had the quote down, but it was uh, from Hitchcock talking about suspense and uh, the bomb under the table, and the audience is watching the, the people sitting around a table talking and about whatever, but the audience knows there's the bomb. And that is suspense mm. because the audience the whole time was like, oh, my God, somebody find this thing. Somebody stop this, even though the characters are kind of going on cluelessly. And so that, that idea of there is danger is actually much more exciting than if the bomb exploded without warning. Yeah. Otherwise, I just it'd just be jarring and weird. But if we have three minutes before that happens, we know there's a bomb under the table and we're watching that, that clock get lower and lower and lower. Our tension is just going up and up and up. And I, I think that's actually the really big thing with horror that you need is that tension of, we know there's danger. We know the danger is getting closer. We, we know how much peril our characters are in. And that's part of like back to the, the sudden random ax in the face. That's very different, but imagine it if you knew about that there was a killer behind the door the entire time. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, oh God, please don't, please don't go in the bathroom. That's where they're hiding. And one of the things we can do with, with gaming is that the players can also be aware of what certain things are, even though their characters aren't. So they actually have to role play that same thing. You know, mm. you know they don't know where there's a bomb, 
but they know there's a bomb, and that's where their tension is coming from, even if their characters are clueless about it. So it's not about killing them. It's the fear. Yeah. It's the threat, because in a situation like that, it might even be quite deflating for the bomb to actually go off. It's more the fear of the bomb going off that's important. And yeah, I was thinking about this earlier in terms of setting the stakes or the things that the characters are interested in. And thinking of the example of the old Spider-Man comics, where you've got Peter Parker's Aunt May is always getting into trouble. She's always getting kidnapped by villains or menaced, and bad things are always on the verge of happening to her. But they don't happen to her in the end. And it would be absolutely anticlimactic if at any point she died as a result of that. It's just that ongoing threat and sense of peril that keeps things escalating. And to some extent, you do get that a bit in horror games, particularly in longer ones and campaigns where you want to keep that threat of the bad thing happening dangling over the players' heads, you know, the Sword of Damocles. As soon as that sword falls on them, it's not a threat anymore. When we play Call of Cthulhu campaigns, we go pulp now because I do want the higher level of survivability, but still still vulnerable. But when we do one shots, it's always Call of Cthulhu because that long-term investment factor is, is not going to be there because we don't have the aspect of I'm heavily invested in this character that I've had a long time or we're heavily invested in this plot that's been going on for months. That'd be kind of a bummer if all of a sudden we all died and none of us ever got to finish the plot. Because even when people say it's like, well, that's when you have a new group of investigators to solve the first one. It's like, yeah, realistically, most people aren't going to want to do that. They're like, ah, next, because they're they're frustrated or, or whatnot, or we've just wasted all this time. So I, I feel that with the, the Aunt May thing, that's we were kind of talking with D&D earlier of it's a different type of thrill. So even though we know Aunt May is going to make it out, we know Superman's going to survive the movie or the comic or whatnot, but it's the, the thrill of how are they going to do it? Yeah. Certain heroes in longer running stories, you know, Bond, any comic book character, we know they're going to survive or we know if they die, they're going to come back, but it's the thrill of how do they do it? or, you know, the adventure along the way. So it's a, it's a different type of fun, but it's not horror. In horror comics, very rarely do we have a repeat hero all the time. You know, <laughs> there's been a few that could pull that off. But I think that also raises another aspect of all this, which is particularly for one-shots in Call of Cthulhu, there are a great many of them that aren't necessarily no-win, but where you're very unlikely to win, or at least you're very unlikely to survive it. Maybe you'll get a pyrrhic victory out of it, but it's proper horror. It's very unlikely to end well for the protagonists. I guess it's a question of whether a genuinely no-win scenario like that actually ends up potentially sapping a sense of peril out of the game because the players feel that that's the case, feel that there's absolutely no way to resolve this in a positive way for their characters. Do you risk that, that feeling where it's no longer really worth fighting for? 
Well, even with with one shots, and with that, I take the kid gloves off. You know, I, mm-hmm. I I'm usually pretty open. Like guys, we're going in hardcore mode. We're doing a one shot. Triumph in a, in a one shot does not always mean survival. Actually, in any game, triumph does not necessarily mean survival. If the character's death is the way they achieve defeating the bad guy or or, or whatnot, then that actually is just as fulfilling for most of us in the sense that my character didn't survive, but their death is how we were able to save the day ultimately. But I still feel that there should, there should always be a reasonable chance of success because I, even I want to be able to look at my players and say, there is a chance. There's actually a good chance, (laughs) but it's 30%. (laughs) It's never zero. Those good character deaths that, you know, we celebrate, come about by bad dice rolls not just by b- overwhelming forces i think you know the good ones that like that says it's, it's a low relatively low odds but uh i think if if there's nothing you can do as a player character then there is just a sense of well you know there was nothing i could have done there it didn't matter what i rolled or what i pulled out nothing was going to work yeah <sighs> I think you can still have interesting, emotionally satisfying conclusions in situations like that. But I think there's always got to be that glimmer of hope that keeps you going on through them. There are a number of scenarios I've written that are fundamentally, well, not no-win, but they do predispose themselves to TPKs and they, every now and then you'll get a character who survives, but they are the exception. But it is that, the the fact that every now and then you get those characters surviving that I think keeps them feeling horrific, is the fact that if the dice are in my favour and if I do the right things and if I'm I'm clever here, I might get through it, but probably not. Yeah, it's kind of like a game of Jenga. Eventually that tower is going to fall. It doesn't end until the tower falls. If it even ends in a TPK, if if your players are one vested in it it's a, it's a good story and they they do feel the sense of risk but they do feel that sense of hope versus this is just going to be you know doom porn of watching these characters die without any hope at all that's i don't find that fun if they walk in knowing the chances are against them but there's still a chance it can still be very satisfying but that's also in the one shot versus campaign mode uh mindset for me uh, because with it, with a one shot, I do want it to be a little bit more. Um, you know, we're never going to play these characters after this. Let's uh, let's see if they make it to tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, I guess it comes down to either knowing your players and what they enjoy, or if it's a one shot and you run it at a convention, then communicating to the players mm. who might want to sign up what kind of game it is. You know, if I think about other entertainment. There are certain horror films that I know my wife will enjoy and I'll put them on, but there are a lot of others that I know she won't enjoy, so I won't subject her to them because <laughs> I, I, I've come to know her tastes in films. And I think with your players, we knew our old friend Kevin White, Scott, who uh, mm. great player, great GM, and he enjoyed some Call of Cthulhu games, but at the same time, he was a... I remember him saying, you know, what's the point in playing it? He's just going to go die or go insane. And that is a, a feeling that some people have. But it didn't stop him enjoying some of the games that we played. But I think, you know, some of us, I think us three, 
enjoy that kind of death spiral and watching our characters just have terrible things happen to them. And you know, when we roll those double zeros, we laugh and enjoy the terrible things that happen. Not everybody does. They might enjoy Call of Cthulhu, but they're not really into that side of it. They're into, you know, all the the adventure. So pulp might appeal to them more, but even with standard Call of Cthulhu, I think there are just modes of playing the game that are going to appeal to different people. So getting to know, it's difficult, but getting to know the kind of things that your players enjoy and trying to um, put those forward at the table. Absolutely. It's a very much know your audience and audience expectation. If they have a realistic expectation, they're much more receptive to what they're given. And I guess knowing yourself as well, knowing actually recognizing what kind of game you like running and being able to communicate that to people. Because I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure how I do that to people to tell them what kind of game I'm going to be running. When I put a sign-up sheet up at a convention, I never write much of a description. I just say, <laughs> it's a 1920s Call of Cthulhu game. <laughs> Come along. Also, you've got about the length of a tweet to be able to describe it, yeah, including <laughs> What's the genre? What's the system? You know, all this. And we've only got like, the, you know, this little brief window that we can put the description down. So it's not really the best method of uh, conveying all of that. But I guess with that style of game, it is you are taking a punt. You are just taking a gamble. It's a one shot. I'm putting myself yeah. in for it. I know that it might not suit me, but, you know, let's hope. Fingers crossed. And more than once on sign-up sheets, I have just put down the phrase, this is not a game for people who like happy endings. Yeah. That would drive me faster to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also because I would like, it's like, I'm going to try to get a happy ending out of this. You know, if <laughs> it's part of it, like the hope. Maybe I can. I remember at a convention, I got into a, a conversation with a, a gentleman who he really did not like Call of Cthulhu. And it was, it was real clear he had played it maybe at a couple of conventions and they were probably meat grinder games, but he had a very odd impression of it. And his argument was like, you know, what's the point? You, you can't win at Call of Cthulhu. And so my standard response to that was like, okay, how do you win at D&D? He had never considered that before. So the, the reason he, he didn't like Call of Cthulhu is your character cannot ultimately win at it. Ultimately, on a long enough time scale, your character, if, if you continue being an investigator, is going to be doomed. But he had never thought about what the end goal for D&D was, and his, his answer was to open up a tavern. I've never quite understood what that answer was, but, but he did ponder it for a few <laughs> seconds. So the ultimate fate for any Call of Cthulhu investigator should be to open up a pub somewhere. Evidently. Or a used bookstore. Like... <laughs> just become that guy at the beginning of Hellraiser, just passing out boxes, take it, it's yours. <laughs> thank, you, thank, you, thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, 
It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, a big thanks going out to Jacob Darby. Could be Derby. So the old disclaimer, if we mess up any of your names, do let us know and we'll try harder next time. And thank you to Ethan Jones. And thanks to Rudy, Johan, Angel Bustard. And thank you to Scott Timmins. And thanks to Keith Crossley. And thank you, Scott Key. I'm getting all the Scots today. And finally, thanks to Franz Schmutzer. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, please do let people know whether that means writing a review somewhere where you get your podcast from or just talking about it on social media to people you like or, or even people you hate. We'll take anyone. We're good like that. Well, it only remains for me to say thank you to Seth and to recommend people to go look up his YouTube channel if they're not already familiar with it. He won the Gold Any Award for Best Online Content back in 2019. Nearly three years ago, Seth. Yeah, I know. I know. And then I look at those old videos. I'm like, how the hell did that win? <laughs> <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Is there anything you would like to uh, tell the listeners about or, you know, pluggables or places they can find you that you can tell us about? Tons. Um, let's see. Uh, well, this year I'm finally going back out into to public after two years of lockdown. So um, I will be getting back on uh, the beginning of the con circuit, starting at Chaosium Con in April. Sooner Con, which is in well, around Oklahoma City, late June. And then I will, I'm going to Gen Con again. So I will be uh. back out in public. Uh, trying to remember to uh, keep a happy face. I have a resting bitch face. So at cons, my face hurts at the end of the day because <laughs> I have to remember to smile. But you don't have to now, Seth. If you're wearing a mask, just get one of those with a smile printed on it. It's also in the eyes. Well, dark glasses. Otherwise, I'll just go to my, my <laughs> default face that does not look approachable. <laughs> Then, of course, my YouTube channel, uh, which is under the highly imaginative name Seth Skorkowski. I wish I had thought through that a little bit better at the beginning. And um, then I'm on the Modern Mythos podcast with John Hook. And then, um, see, I've got a dice set coming out from Q Workshop. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they d declared me an RPG icon. So I got to design a dice set, which oddly enough has some extra D10. It has two extra of the tins d10s so that way you could do double bonus or ah. double penalty with call of cthulhu i was informed i had to include a d12 because originally i was like i want two extra the the 10 digit d10s and no d12s <laughs> and they're like we have to have a d12 uh, there's people out there that play games with them so <laughs> fine yeah. uh so but i did i did gear that one towards call of cthulhu specifically well then of course after that you've got uh, my books and uh, audiobooks so i've got quite a bit of urban fantasy with a horror. All my stuff is a horror edge or sword and sorcery with a horror edge. <laughs> All my stuff is pretty dark. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm -hmm.
I seem to recall when we first mentioned Seth's name, I stumbled over it. I was like, I don't know why. But I remember coming across your name early in one of the shows before I knew who you were, Seth. Perhaps we were talking about one of your videos. Your name just stuck in my mind from a long time ago. I've been used to my name being mispronounced my entire life, so I, I, it barely registers to me. <laughs> I must admit, I do slip up every now and then, slip an extra syllable in there. It just seems too easy to it, do. It just, it just wants more. 